Welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I am here, as ever, with Howard Teibel. Good afternoon, Pete. Well, it's afternoon here. What time is it there? It's 10, it's 1020 there. Is it that is. correct? It is. It is 1020. I'm only on my second cup of coffee. Yeah, and I got to be careful because sometimes I think I, I text you at like 8 in the morning, and that's really 5 o'clock in the morning. Yes, I, that's, that I, happens. I want you to know that I, I apologize when I do that. But you know what? That's okay. I have a do not disturb uh, so that I can't receive anything until 8 o'clock in the morning oh, my time. Excellent. Yeah, that's so good. feel free. Do whatever you want. I won't see it. All right. Very All good. Right. We are, are going to be talking about the myths of higher ed this week as a result of a, of a, a column that was uh, written by Gary A. Olson, the president of Damon College. Six common myths about higher ed in the Huffington Post. We'll put a link in the show notes. But before we dig it, make sure you head over to TybalLink.com to learn more about us and this show. You can subscribe for free. Just click the blue button and we'll keep you updated with the latest episodes. You can obviously join the conversation at Howard Tybel on Twitter or find me at Pete Wright. We'd love to hear from you. Or you can find Tybal Inc. on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm very excited about this conversation. Howard, you sent this email this morning. We were still kind of puzzling through what are we going to talk about? And suddenly, like lightning from the heavens, you were inspired uh, by Mr. Olson's post. So what I was inspired by, Pete, actually is a thread back to an earlier article that I had read in the Chronicle by Becky Sopiano called How to Explain What's Happening to College Prices. And it, what's what's great about this is this was an article that teed up this idea that you know, in different situations, you might be different. And this is not just for the enrollment management folks. This is for anybody that's in higher ed. And you find yourself on a plane or in the grocery store or you're at a party and you're talking about – and someone finds out you work in a college and what's front and center in everybody's mind today is college pricing. And the article talked about whether you're talking to uh, professional parents with children, working single parents, how do you tell the story differently to different folks? And this has been a theme in our work uh, for for a long time, which is how do we take strategic conversations and make it appropriate for the right people? So then this article comes out, or I read this morning by Gary Olson about myths. And it occurs to me, and we're going to talk about some of these myths, that these speak to ways that the media uh, in their need to come up with uh, gotcha taglines uh, tell a story that in many cases people buy into because they don't t- you know most people don't read the chronicle and don't take the time to see what's going on and and I think that it's really important that we take back the conversation that in many ways has been hijacked by the media. It is. It, it, we've gotten to the point where higher education has become, uh, a, and I use heavy air quotes here, an economic scandal. That's good. That's right. It, is, it, had, it has that quality out, out in the world. And, and Gary, and we're going we're to talk just about a couple of these. Some of these myths, and, and again, we all know these. You know, anyone listening to the show is going to go, yeah, these are, these are familiar. My point is we need to do a better job of educating the stakeholders that we are trying to influence. Myth number one that Gary spoke, speaks to uh, is many students don't graduate with $100,000 in debt. That that is, uh, and again, I'm not fact-checking this, but I think it's pretty close that in terms of those who are have $100,000 in debt or more, it's around 4%. And if you accumulate the total amount of debt out there, which a lot of the media loves to talk about, it does paint a picture the same way we think about credit card debt. However, it shouldn't be the primary thing we talk about because in many cases, uh, 
most of us, at least the the, the statistics out there, is that 40 percent of Bowers uh, owe less than ten thousand dollars. And again, I'm sure there's different statistics, but the, the important thing is, is that we don't find ourselves. Uh, being defensive, so overly defensive about this debt conversation. Well, and I, I think that's a you know a, the Institute for College Access and Success Project. Uh, they did a a project on student debt, and they came up with uh, the average student loan debt across the country. This is average student loan debt, not just private colleges, is twenty nine thousand dollars. That's right. So. And listen, that's not a trivial amount for someone who makes a lower salary. I'm not I'm not diminishing this, but if then if you take into account this the 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 second myth is that college degree is no longer a wise investment it still is the case at least from an economic standpoint that the lifetime earnings conversation which back in 2013 uh pew Ch- the pew research center calculated $650,000 differential between a college versus a high school grad. Now we're talking about probably a million dollar difference between a college and a high school grad. So yes, owing $29,000 coming out of college is not a trivial expense at the same time if you take the long-term view. And this is something we do need to keep reminding folks around us because I think that the college experience still has great value. It's not necessarily for everyone, but let's not use this debt conversation to then suggest that it's no longer a wise investment. It, it, it may be worth noting that the, the bigger challenge that we have here is pe- kids graduating from college with significant credit card debt at dramatically higher interest rates. And, you know, maybe there are some other kind of living and education things we can we can tackle. But but uh, education debt is is typically not a not a terrible thing to be saddled with. That's right. So that so that those two things tie together very much. The debt conversation and then the the, the question of whether it's a wise, wise investment. The third one he speaks to is something that I even find myself thinking about and I know is out there is this question about the affordability of private over publics. Now this was an interesting one and now you can talk about the background of this one but this one in particular because when when uh, President Olson here is writing his perspective is is writing it sounds very much to me like he's writing toward parents right he's writing toward people who are nervous about sending their kids to college in the coming years and uh, and that they may not even try to apply to a private independent college because they they fear that it is too expensive because they've already bought into this myth. But there is another side of this argument, which is this economic pressure from the on the financial officers. That's right. So for example, he writes, um, while the average published tuition and fees at a private four-year college in 2013-14 was 30000 students on average paid less than half that amount, around $12,000. So think about this from two perspectives. This is not something that we can build a long-term financial plan around. You know, this is precisely for business officers at the heart of the problem is that is how do we how do we rethink this discounting conversation in a way that allows us to plan and budget for the future. At the same time, I can tell you from personal experience, when uh, my eldest son was looking at colleges, a really good private school was willing to discount his tuition room board that would be would have been absolutely equivalent of the public four-year in-state tuition room and board. In the end, he chose the public. However, we got to be careful that we don't find ourselves um, not telling a better story about the fact that 
parents shouldn't and and and, and pr- prospective students shouldn't be turning away and I think they are from privates because of this initial sense that we cannot afford this. And, and enrollment management and those particular departments spend a lot of time thinking about this. But it's another part of the story out there that I think from the point of view of, of how we fill our class and how we think about the work, we need to do a better job of making sure we're telling a consistent story within our school. I'm very gratified to hear this information as a parent who is preparing to send, uh, you know, two kids to college, uh, you know, to hear President Olson's perspective in debunking the myth to hear your experience. But I also want to make sure that we don't let this discussion of, um, of the value of discounting uh, to private institutions go too far like uh, a field how what is the the value or is there still value to today's institution in heavily discounting versus just publishing what you're going to charge the train left the station a long time ago and schools are stuck in some ways with a model that if they break it at their institution they risk uh, experimenting with something that actually, so for example, let's say that you did the, you know, we can all remember the sat when Saturn first came out, you know, you, the, the price in the window is the price you're going to pay. And that, that concept really appealed to a lot of people. Although there's a lot of other people that like to haggle. So now we have a model that's been in place for a very long time where you get to walk away or get a letter in the mail that says, your your son or you you have been entitled to a fifteen twenty thousand uh, dollar uh, merit scholarship not not needs based but merit and this is because we like other qualities that you bring and discounting has become a mechanism to help seal the deal I mean and and we're stuck in that mode of if we if we stopped and some schools are experimenting with publishing and saying, this is the price you're going to pay. And other schools who are not doing, because I've talked to business officers, they're saying, you know what, that's a big risk. Now, they're not willing to take that. All I'd say is it, it's it's a model that has a lot of precedent. You are competing against institutions who use that model. And unless you can offer, unless you have a high degree of confidence that you can bring kids in or you can bring in the class because it, it, it fundamentally, if you think about where this conversation shows up for a school, it is a cycle. It is, it is looking at the next year's class and what, can we bring them in? There's very little longer term view about this discounting conversation. It's, it's a very immediate lever. You're right? peeling off of a conversation we had before. You pull that lever when you need to increase your class size because you don't have the, you know, the takers. Now, there, there are examples out there of schools that, have, that are experimenting with doing it differently. However, all I'd say is this is something that you need to make sure you've got an alternative mechanism that that offsets the risk if you if you don't discount are you are you going to lose kids I, mean, I think part of this is doing some market research and saying if we offered this how would that change your your buying uh, or, or your buying into uh, coming to our institution mm-hmm. uh, I don't think schools have enough information to confidently know that in the private sector, uh, doing something other than discounting 
that, that they would actually see the benefit. So therefore, we're in this perpetual cycle about continuing it. The benefit to parents is that in families, and I say parents, I mean, there's, you know, the majority, I keep saying that because I work mostly with the, the, um, the, 19, the 19 to 21 year old concept of education, when in fact, the majority of kids are adults, right? Yes. So I, the point here is that for most of us looking to get a private education, uh, we still have the benefit of looking really carefully at seeing how we can how we can get our needs met financially, and they're out there, and that's his point. And I think it's it's a valid point, and it speaks to why private schools are still a viable financial alternative over the public's. So that, that sort of leads into the next really pair of uh, of myths in President Olson's uh, piece. Do you want to comment on these? They're, they're related to enrollment. So you know the, the fourth one is about. That private colleges uh, enroll mainly wealthy traditional students and, and don't have diversity. And his point here is that if you look on a public institution and a private institution, you're going to see diversity in both. I would say most of us would agree that the affordability conversation, uh, there's a lot of room for growth around this diversity conversation. And schools make an attempt uh, through their enrollment to make sure that they've got diversity, whether it's racial diversity or ethnic diversity or and, and international diversity, uh, I think there's opportunities to do even more. And but but the sticking point obviously is as you think about diversity and trying to bring in uh, different audience groups, this directly speaks to this question of how do you think about financial aid? And there's there's the connection between that. So I think he's right that because I have been on a lot of public uh, campuses and there's diversity. And when I'm on a private campus, I see the same thing. But I think there's more room to grow. And, you know, the, the, his fifth myth, fewer students are enrolling in private colleges. I think that is also incorrect. And schools are doing a good job, I think, for the most part of selling their institutions and they're doing it through the discounting model. And the the, the question is going to be, how long can they continue to sustain that? Uh, the publics absolutely have benefited from uh, the fact that they can offer a better price point uh, for, for most, especially if you're in state. Uh, at the, so, so I think we're getting to a head here, and and we're going to be looking for more and more institutions to find creative solutions, especially in primarily the privates around this discounting conversation. His his last myth is one that, again, as business officers, you know more than anybody else, which is the story about why aren't you using more of your endowment to 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 lower the cost of the education experience and and what's not known out there is not only is our endowment not equivalent to Harvard or Stanford in the in the billions of dollars i mean at least his his quote here is that uh, the fact most uh, the immediate endowment of all independent institutions, these are the privates, was around $22 million, down from 21, 24 the previous year. The important point here is that, as you all know, these gifts are primarily restricted. So monies cannot be moved for other purposes, uh, although there is opportunities, obviously, for senior leaders and their boards to say, how do we want to think about offering more maybe scholarships and and they're out there. Or how do we how do we position 
those who are giving to give in a way that is either more unrestricted or towards things that we're looking to over the next five to 10 years. That's the story of financial sustainability, isn't it? It's like if you want to give, the biggest gift you can give with your money is to give it in such a way that allows the financial officers and leadership team to spend it in a way that makes the most sense. And I've worked with schools where they got a significant uh, contribution by a uh, an alum, but it was targeted towards something that wasn't consistent with their strategic plan, oh. and they modified their strategic plan to take the money. Now, what's interesting is it's not that black or white because you can make a case if you are – if you're being given money for this kind of discipline, there, there's enough diversity in the programs on your campuses where you can justify it. But you got to be really careful about letting uh, significant donations guide the direction you're trying to go. It's, it's a tough conversation for senior leaders to have. And it's a tough conversation. It's a tough thing to say no. Yeah. To a significant donation. Yeah. In the end, you end up paying interest. It's You're paying sort of philosophical or strategic interest on a debt that you're taking out that you believe you'll be able to recoup as a result of this new building or this new program or whatever it is. And that is a gamble. It's a, it's a lot of money, but it's always a gamble. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's there's a statistic that you that you omitted that I, I, I want to make sure we include in here. Yes, as of 2011, 2012, there were only 20, the, the independent institution average in, or median endowment was 22 million there are only 47 institutions with an endowment uh, of a billion dollars or more 47 yeah. institutions is there of the 1600 private ones private ones right 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 yeah exactly so so that's another uh idea out there that we as business officers or you as business officers make assumptions that people understand, even those who are the internal stakeholders, and they don't. So so the whole point of this, between the article in the Chronicle about how to explain what's happening, let's let's start to practice more within our own ranks about how we tell the story and recognize this we it this is about being a good storyteller. And then that translates out into the community and how we talk about uh, where we're trying to go uh, in terms of those that we're trying to influence as parents, students, trustees, faculty, and so on. You know, it makes me think of a a fantastic uh, quote from Michael Crichton. You remember him, Michael Crichton? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Do you know what the gel man amnesia effect is? Have you ever heard of this? I'm about to teach you something, I think. You know I don't know what that is. It's a softball. Uh, briefly stated, according to Michael Crichton, the gelman amnesia effect is as follows. You open the newspaper to an article on some subject that you know very well. Uh, let's say, he says, uh, in Murray's case, physics, he's talking about a, a physicist in this piece. In my case, show business. You read the article and see the journalist has absolutely no understanding of either the facts or the issues. Often the article is so wrong, it actually presents the story backward, reversing cause and effect. I call these the wet streets cause rain stories. The newspapers are full of them. In any case, you read with exasperation or amusement the multiple errors in a story, and then you turn the page to national or international affairs and read as if the rest of the newspaper was somehow more accurate about Palestine than the baloney you just read. You turn the page, and you forget what you know. That Mm. 
is an incredible story for me. I think about that all the time. We, as people who are in higher education, from my perspective, faculty, from your perspective, finance, uh, and and the business officers out there who are reading this, don't forget what you know and the fact that other people don't. Uh, and uh, that that this is what it means to take back the narrative. It's not just your you know internal leadership. This has to trickle down all the way down to mom and pop who are reading the newspaper every day. And I'd go so even further, Pete, because I can tell you that, and this is a perfect, your comment's great. The, the piece we need to do a better job of is stop assuming that those who we think should know, know, because they don't. Exactly, yeah. I'm talking about the people in your institution. Yeah. I'm talking about the people on, on your boards that you're presenting to as faculty or as business officers or as presidents. We need to do a better job of having it be okay to lay information out, not in a patronizing way, but in a way that acknowledges it's okay that we have a and sometimes superficial view of this or we have myths and, and start to debunk them. And I think this is what the Huffington Post and the Chronicle speaking to. So so hopefully people will take away uh, going back to their institution and saying, all right, where do I need to do a better job communicating? We'll, we'll put both of these articles out there if you want to read them. This was great. Thank you very much, Howard Teipel. Where are you off to next? Monday Night Football. Excellent. That's what I wanted to hear. Did That's you want exactly to hear exactly the story I yeah, wanted to hear. I, got, I, I was... Uh, I, I got tickets from uh, from an auction at our congregation, and I'm taking my wife to Monday night. So at this point, when this show comes out, this will we will have either kicked butt, and we're st- <laughs> and we're still undefeated, or I'm 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 telling you what a, what a horrible game it was. So we, we we will see. I can't wait. Thank you so much, Howard. This was a great conversation. Yeah, Pete. It's always good doing this with you. And thank you, everybody who has downloaded and subscribed and listened to the show. We deeply appreciate you. On behalf of Howard Teibel, I'm Pete Wright, and we will catch you next week on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel Inc.